Well, let me, uh, let me read the passage of Scripture that, that is our passage today. Uh, I want to start in Mark 1, chapter 14. After John was put in prison, Jesus went into Galilee proclaiming the good news, the good news of God. The time has come, he said. The kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe the good news. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. When they had gone a little further, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John in a boat preparing their nets. Without delay, he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. As we walk through Mark, I I, I want to emphasize again what a privilege it is to go deep into the Scriptures. How we have this opportunity to, to bore in to the truths of God. And so I hope you don't mind as we as we go through this, as we did last week, uh, through just simple verses, but actually having them expanded in, in our minds and hopefully in our hearts. It would be very easy, wouldn't it, to pass over these first six little words after John was put in prison. But that's, that's not just a small thing, is it? Two years, two years ago, I remember it like it was yesterday. We were at a party in our house. It was a joyful time, a joyful celebration, and we got the phone call. Two of our friends in a country near here had been arrested and put in jail. They had been apprehended in the airport. They were taken to a prison and other frightening places without charges, interrogated, for months, simply, simply because they were followers of Jesus Christ. During the months to come, they often thought their life was forfeit. After all, their pastor had been arrested in the same place, in the same way, and months later his body was found on the side of the road with 50 knife wounds. So we prayed and we wondered. It was a good time actually of spurring me on to greater faithfulness and prayer while they were in jail. Some of you were at that party. Some of you remember how our joyful celebration turned into a tearful prayer meeting. So let's not skip over these six words. Let's think about what this means. This short but powerful phrase after John was put in prison. John was the last of the Old Testament prophets. And when Jesus hears that John has been arrested, it's like a trigger. Something happens in him. John's public ministry is over. Jesus' public ministry starts. Because the words of the prophets of old have been completed. John's whole life and ministry was for an extremely narrow time, a very brief moment. How, how long? I, we don't really know exactly, but how long was, was John's ministry? Months, maybe? 
might have been weeks. We, we don't really know how long it went. I wonder what John thought in jail. What, what, what were his reflections about ministry and his life? Did he feel like he'd been a failure? Things certainly don't look good for the ministry of Christ and the proclamation of the Messiah, especially if your view was that the Messiah was to come and kick out the bad guys. John himself would have doubts in jail and said questions to Jesus. Are you the one that we thought you were? Sitting in jail allows for all kinds of doubts and questions to creep in. And yet here again, just as we talked about last week, we recognize that those who think a faithful life in Christ will result in the blessings of God, in quotes, that is, the showers of health and wealth, are confronted, again, by the Scriptures. How can we believe that the faithful life in Christ only results in good things when we see Jesus full of the Spirit, led by the Spirit into the wilderness where He was tempted by Satan. Or John, who had faithfully proclaimed the Word of God being arrested and put in jail, where he will die. John's life is an unsuccessful life in the eyes of the world. Now, there's a lot of gaps about John's life. No one, no one wrote a, a biography about John. So... We don't know how he traveled or how, how old he was particularly. He was around 30. We, we don't know what he did for a living. Um, we know that he's just one more casualty to a corrupt and wicked government that made sport of him while he was in a dungeon. The foolish and drunken King Herod, a man manipulated by a scheming wife, had his head cut off. Herod's, Herod's only claim to fame for this little despotic backwater backwoods king was that he lived during the time of Jesus. That's the only reason we even remember him. That and the fact that he murdered John, the greatest prophet of all time. Jesus told us that. Jesus was to tell us that John was the greatest prophet ever. In sharp contrast to John today, we have many modern prophets, TV prophets. They tell us you can have the world and Jesus. You can have it both ways. They come from a long, long tradition of gods, of following gods, who tell us you can have it both ways. You can have the world and God. Their names were Baal and Molech the wicked gods of the pagan nations. They were fertility gods. They were prosperity gods as well. They're no different. They would tell us, you can have it. You can have it all. But if you believe that you can be successful in the world's eyes and that your goal is to have worldly success, that's your aim. If your aim is to have worldly success and that God will give you all you desire, then you are following a different God than the God of the Bible. John was faithful to the vision of the kingdom of God. What about you? Do you, do you see your primary, primary call to be a call of faithfulness? Or, or is your hope more that you can live a, a self 
fulfilled life in Christ. It's hard to tell, isn't it? Many things are relative. And of course, I understand. You need to work in the workplace and put your hands well as a Christian where you work and live. I understand that. But sometimes the idolatries of our hearts are very, very sneaky. I think they're exposed best by our children. (laughs) Uh, uh, The idols of our our lives come out from those things we desire for our kids, right? Can you imagine a mom or dad saying, son or daughter, I want you to live like John the Baptist. Can you imagine that? Listen, uh, don't worry about what you eat. Locusts and grasshoppers are great. High-protein diet, right? I've got a camel's hair vest for you, just one. I know the kids are going to make fun of you, but I just, just wear this one, okay? Don't worry about how it smells. Don't worry about how it feels. And here's a belt, right? Don't worry about your education that much. You're going to be uh, working in the desert. Hey, um, if you get thrown in jail because you proclaim the truth to people that are more powerful than you, you, you lose your, your, your freedom and your, your work. Uh, praise God! A life well lived. I, I don't think so. <laughs> don't you think that exposes the idolatry of our hearts? And yet... This sounds a lot like Jesus in Matthew chapter 5. It sounds a lot like, don't worry about what you eat or what you wear. Are not the flowers clothed more finely than King Solomon? Aren't aren't the birds of the air fed? Does not God care about you? Your very hairs are numbered on your head. Don't worry about that stuff, but seek first what? The kingdom. Seek first the kingdom. Your purpose in life is faithfulness. So that that our goal as parents is to raise children who are godly more than their tops in the class. That we take part in a new church and and become faithful members here at Redeemer despite the hiccups or the the problems of, of living in this context. Maybe for a brief time. God raises you up for some ministry. Maybe a ministry that gets you in trouble like John the Baptist. But you're faithful because you've been living out, practicing out a faithful life in the day-to-day. I love that the Puritans saw life as a dress rehearsal. You know, that, that, that they said that our life here on earth was a life of faithfulness so that one day, one day when we appeared before the throne of God, we would have faithfulness to offer. Many of you um, have told us this past week uh, how much it meant to you to know of the struggles and hardships that that Leanne went through in the illness that that we faced uh, uh, six years ago. And we're really touched by that. I wanted wanted to tell you that one of the things that got us through was a focus on the faithful day. A wise friend told us, um, remember, there are only two days we worry about in life. Just two. Today, right? 
and the day. <laughs> and that's, that may be one and the same, right? The day may be today. So we're faithful in the day, day by day. We live out faithfulness to God every day. I have a good friend named Barbara Boyd. She was married. Uh, she was engaged to a man named Ryan, Ralph Willoughby. And they were deeply in love. He, he was in Michigan at a camp for students, and she was in California. Um, she got the phone call that somehow, they, she didn't know the details, but somehow Ralph had drowned at this camp. She was just young, 20-something, in love, devastated. She said she wandered out to the beach and uh, couldn't believe that the sun was still shining. It was a beautiful California day. Couldn't believe that the waves kept coming in. Ralph is dead. But she said the only thing, the only thing that gave her comfort at his funeral was a young man who came up to her and said, Remember, Barbara, Jesus may come back today. Today. Today may be the day. And how will we be found on that day? Will we be faithful? Pure and simple. A life of faithfulness means more to God than all the riches of the world. It's our treasure that we offer up to Him. John's life was faithful. Notice here, after John's arrest, Jesus proclaims the gospel or the good news of the kingdom. We need to find out why it's good news. Okay, I want to ask that question. Why is this good news? So Mark says in verse 14, Jesus preached the good news of the kingdom. And in verse 15, we see that it's about three things, primarily three things. The times, the time has come, he says. The kingdom itself, the kingdom of God, and its closeness, it's come near. So first, the order of the kingdom is now, at the start of verse 15. The prophecies that we read about, the prophecies that we've studied, Isaiah 55, that Victor read for us so well today, Isaiah 55 is here, now. This is it. Now, you, you know that anticipation, right? You, you know that joy of anticipating the day when it comes, right? This is like the day. Any, any child who has longed for their birthday, you know, you know that if you have a child and they long for their birthday, you know they start two days after their previous birthday, longing for their next birthday, right? And you're counting the days. I love it when, when uh, children tell me their years in halves. You know, I'm, I'm three and a half, I'm four and a half, I'm... Right? I can't even keep track of which year I am. <laughs> I'm, I'm, let me see. I was born in 50. I have to count, right? They, they know. And they're anticipating that day, the birthday. Are, are appropriate for our congregation here. Uh, you know, the birth of this child, the, the, the birthday. Mothers and fathers anticipating, anticipating that, that time when the baby will come, right? And you know that longing, and you know the day's coming. You know it's coming. You're not sure exactly when. Although some people get it scheduled. But I mean, nowadays. <laughs> that day will come. That's what this means. 
that, that the, the time has come. That, that, that prophecy that was so pregnant has opened up at this point. All the things in the past are happening now. So, so when Jesus says, just kind of to jump ahead a bit, we're going to talk more about this, but when Jesus says, repent and believe, part of what he's talking about is that he's saying, repent of thinking that it won't come. Right? He's saying, repent of that idea that, that you know, I can put this off. I, it, it's been so long, you know. But listen, you, you, don't, you don't need a preacher to tell you this, right? You, you go to any ta- uh, you know, tax or financial planner or any insurance agent who's worth their salt. They're going to tell you, look, it's inevitable. It's coming. Death and taxes, right? <laughs> we know it. Um, and the same is true for us as Christians. We know that, that when the gospel comes to us, when it comes to us, we have to be ready. It, it demands action. Stop acting like the time will never come. We say with more certainty than tax planners or insurance agents, the gospel, when it's presented to you, is the time. It's the time to believe. Secondly, notice that the king is not the kingdom is not an earthly kingdom. It's the kingdom of God. The emphasis is like that. This is the kingdom of God. There were lots of kingdoms. Lots of people went to kingdoms. But this is the kingdom that all kingdoms will bow to. This is the kingdom above all kingdoms. In some ways, it's like the other kingdoms. There's a sovereign who rules. There's there's a a sovereign that is all-powerful. So that the kingdom of God is the place of God's kingdom and rule. But there are significant differences too. For one, it's not a geographical place. It's a spiritual place. And the kingdom of God is a kingdom that will never end. Unlike earthly kingdoms. Furthermore, it's vastly more valuable than any nation or kingdom on the earth. Those are like the passing of gnats or flies. They, they're come, they come and gone. To be a citizen of this kingdom is to own the most important passport with the greatest privileges of citizenship. And finally, Jesus says the kingdom is near. It seems a little strange, but he says it's at hand. The kingdom is near. It's at hand. It's within your reach. That's because the center of the kingdom is Jesus. So we know, though though they didn't quite see it, that if they had just reached out their hand, they could have touched the king of the kingdom. He was right there before them. It's astounding news. And not just for them, but for us as well. For you and me. It comes to us today as well. So let me, let me tell you what's good news about this present, at hand, kingdom of God. Because it's not all that. That's all true about it. But that's not what's good news about it. Let me tell you what's good news about the present, at hand, kingdom of God. You ready? You can get in. That's the good news. You can enter the kingdom of God. What an astounding idea that we can actually gain access to the kingdom of God. Now, of course, Mark tells us how this happens. Uh, But let me me tell you what it's like. You know, 
It's, you know the joy of gaining entrance into the kingdom, some, I mean, into a place that's closed like a kingdom? You, you know that joy? You've gotten, off the, you've gotten off the flight, you're in terminal three, you walk forever, you come to that long, snaking line with a guy down, he's just a dot, you know, down at the end of that line, chunk, 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 and you, oh, I've got to go through this line to go through passport control. This is great, isn't it? All of us have done this. So, uh, but... I, without my e-gate card. <laughs> I walk by that line hoping I see some of you guys there standing. <laughs> Put it on the thing, give my fingerprint, the robot opens and I walk to baggage claim where everyone else comes when we all wait for our bags together, right? I mean, it's kind of... <laughs> the joy of entrance, right? The joy of being allowed into the kingdom. That's what, that's what this is about. It's why it's good news. We can get in. And so we need to ask, how? <laughs> how do we get in? Well, look again at the end of verse 15. It's repent and believe. Repent and believe. It's not that you were a Jew. It's not that you have the right skin color. It's not the right bank account or the proper religious background or even morally good enough. Actually, that hurts you. If you think that your morals, if you think your goodness, your own righteousness will gain you access into the kingdom. No, none of that stuff. No, it's to repent and to believe. Repent is a directional change. You turn, you turn around. You go the opposite direction. Here it means you turn from sin. You turn from unbelief, really. Now, unfortunately, when we talk about these things, we tend to think of smoking and drinking too much and working too hard and illicit sex. and That's what we think of, right? When we think of sin, repenting of sin. Those, those are the kind of things that come to mind. Um, and in one sense, it's, it's true. I mean, it's, it's right, in a sense. Certainly, all those things have biblical names. Vain ambition for those who work too hard. Drunkenness. Adultery, gluttony. I don't know what smoking is, actually. But let me be clear. These are symptoms of greater issues. You know, sin is a funny word because the singular is bigger than the plural. Sins, smoking, drinking, you know, the illicit sex, kind of pornography, okay? Sins are smaller than sin. Sin is our condition. It's our heart rebellion against God. And sins are those things which are symptoms of that. So illicit sex or pornography starts with a dissatisfied heart. Adultery starts with a dissatisfied heart. Vain ambition starts with a sinful desire to gain a reputation independent of God. Gluttony is abusing good gifts from God. All these external sins are symptoms of that bigger sin within because all these things push away our desire for God, our belief in God. That's why... That's why the first commandment is the first commandment. Have no other 
gods before me. At its core, at its core, to repent is to turn away from the things the world offers you. The glory, the security, the prosperity, the peace, everything the world says it offers you. And you turn to the glory of God. That's what it means to repent and believe. Now, unbelief is one of our basic problems. The basic human condition is unbelief. Unbelief keeps us out of the kingdom of God. And uh, it's the thing that, it's not just the negative, which is the repent, but also the positive, to go the other way. So we repent of going, that is, negatively, and we turn to God. Belief, the second side of that, of repentance, is the main thing that we should focus on in the Christian life, to have faith, to believe, to go the right way. And that sounds simple in some ways, doesn't it? It sounds simple to believe, especially if you're a Christian here with us this morning. You, you believe, you say you believe. Yet from Adam and Eve, who believed Satan over God, to this morning when you woke up, unbelief plagues us. We believe that we know better than God, which way to go. We believe we know the right thing for our lives more than God. We have beliefs that are competing with God. And in, in some ways, I think the greatest problem in the Christian life is to believe, to believe that Jesus knows better than you. In John chapter 6, things are heating up. Things are uh, sounding a little different than what the disciples had expected. They come to this place where Jesus is talking about being crucified and how they're going to have to suffer and how they've got to eat His flesh and drink His blood as a, as a future look at communion, but to take Him in. And they are appalled with Jesus. Finally, in frustration, they say uh, in, in the last verses of 27-28, what is the work God requires of us? Jesus' response, John 6, 29, the work of God is this, that you believe in the one that God has sent. It's hard. It's, it's really hard when we, when we take what Jesus says and we try and apply it in real life. So, so the things that we think are very noble and wonderful, you know, the stuff about love and generosity and forgiveness, we like that, especially when it relates to us, right? But when we have to take that and apply it in hard situations, in our own lives, well, it's hard to believe. I had a, a good friend named Rick. Uh, Rick had a six-year-old son, went to a friend's house. Actually, the friend's father was a pastor. Thought everything would be wonderful. He spent the night, they spent the night in a tent found out later that the pastor's 14-year-old boy had sexually abused the six-year-old child. And um, it was very painful, very painful for this young boy. Scarred him. He had been kind of a happy child. All of a sudden, he was depressed. Six-year-old, depressed. Didn't know what had happened, didn't understand. 
And my friend Rick started laying plans out to destroy this pastor and his family. He lined up the lawyers. He thought about the press releases that he was going to give out. And then one day he had a quiet time. And in that quiet time, as he read God's word, it became very apparent to him that God was saying to his heart, there's two ways to go here. Your way or my way. Because my way is about forgiveness and love and reconciliation. And your way is about destruction and death. What's it going to be? It's hard to live out, isn't it? (laughs) These are not easy things. Don't be trite with belief. Don't Don't be flippant with repentance. As you live out the gospel in your life, Know that it's hard, and yet it leads to life. It's so important for us to understand that. Just, by the way, Rick decided to go God's way. It was not an easy decision. But it resulted in incredible things in his life and the healing of his own son, plus the restoration of this young wayward boy. Christian, believe. That his way is better than your way. He knows more than you. He's the one we follow. It's his kingdom. So this is the good news. The wonderful inbreaking news of God. If you repent and believe, then we can live in, enter into the kingdom of God. That's the heart of the new covenant. That's the heart of the announcement. Now listen, some of this may be new to you. You've come to Redeemer. This is new. You've never been to church before perhaps. We, we, want you, we want to help you learn how to follow Jesus here. And I, I want to tell you what to do. I, t- I want to tell you the core essence, really, of the book of Mark, but the gospel message, which, which is, believe this gospel. Believe, believe uh, which is what Christians believe, that a holy creator God loves you so much that despite the fact that we were all sinful rebels to His will and way, He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life to become the perfect sacrifice so that, we bec- so that He could become a ransom for many, for all who would put their faith and trust in Him to redeem you from the kingdom of darkness and allow you to move into this kingdom of light. The kingdom of light. Jesus bore the wrath of God on the cross in our place, so that all who would repent and believe could enter the kingdom. This is good news about a risen Savior. That's what it means to become a follower of Jesus. We don't have you raise a hand. We don't have you walk an aisle. We don't have you kneel at an altar. You might have come to faith that way, and that's fine. But we want to focus on the fact that it is to believe, to repent and believe. In the next four verses, 16 through 19, we see more about the details of what it means to live out repentance and belief. Brian Parks is is speaking next week and he's going to talk more about this next week, particularly the authority of Jesus. But here, Jesus starts to demonstrate his authority first by calling people to follow him, the disciples. And what a call! 
Do you, do you see this? They're out there fishing with nets. And so is Jesus, by the way. This is not, Jesus is not throwing out bait and hoping someone will take it. He's throwing out nets and he's pulling in those he wants. It's not the hope of taking a bait. It's more aggressive. It's, it's the irresistible call of God. That's because Jesus is the sovereign God. He's calling people who respond to His authority and power. It's His election. He elects and calls those people to follow Him. And they respond. The brothers respond. As we read it in the text, it's almost as if they fall over themselves to get out of the boat. We certainly know that from other texts. What is it? What is it that so motivates their hearts? What is it that that so grabs them? After all, it's so costly to become a disciple. They have to leave their nets. They have to leave their families. They have to leave their business, a way of life, all to follow Jesus. Well, I don't want to just sound circular here, but they do this because they believe. They really believe. Think of of it this way. If Jesus calls you to follow, and, and you say you will, and you maybe even act excited once or twice. And you tell everyone that you're a follower of Jesus. But you still run your life your own way and you do things that you want to do rather than what He wants you to do. You don't believe. You're not really a believer. These four guys really believe. They're a model of belief. Another reason they're so motivated, their hearts are so on fire is the reason he gives for the call. I'll make you fishers of men. I'll make you fishers of people. That's their motivation. They, they see that the call of God in their life is more important than their work. It's more important than their family relationships. It's more important than anything. So they demonstrate true repentance and belief by following Jesus into the kingdom of God. Now, I hope you're noticing how strange and upside down this kingdom is. Do you notice how odd this is? The secretary of state of this kingdom is in jail. Right? Uh, the, the, the king is on a tour of the wilderness. He's not, he's not busy taking care of politics. He's, he's, he's in the desert. The passport to get in is to repent and believe. And the first cabinet leaders are agriculturalists, fishermen, right? I mean, this is kind of crazy. And yet, that's the kingdom of God. What's the command that Jesus gives His disciples in this kingdom of God? It's It's a little strange as well. Do you see it? It's to follow Him. Follow Him. I have five things. There are hundreds of ways to follow, of course, right? But I have five things that I think, if you'll think about, can guard you in following Christ. Okay? I'm going to walk through them real quick. Remember, no matter our circumstances, we're not out in front. We're not in front. We do not lead. He knows more than us. He always will. We follow Him. Now, I know that sounds silly or simplistic, but listen, how many times in my own life do I get ahead of Jesus? 
Do I start getting out in front and thinking, I'm going to go lead this thing? Uh, He's not being quick enough. Have you noticed that? I complain to God about that all the time. You know, uh, he's invisible. He wants me to do things and he's, he, you can't see him. You know, so he tells me to share my faith. And, uh, you know, I'm like, but you're not here with me. You know, I'm, you want me to do this and you're invisible and I'm not. Right? And I'm getting ready to make a big fool of myself, you know. You know that feeling? But that's what it means to follow. We follow him. Number two, no matter how great our gratitude for the friendship he extends... We are not alongside Jesus. We are not next to Him. You know, it's, it's somewhat amazing that we would ever think that casualness could be godly. I, I don't know where that comes from. Jesus, now, to be sure, Jesus calls us friends. But He does that in, in the book of John, chapter 13, because... And 15, because he tells us his plans. He shows us his plans. And so in that regard, he's, he is a friend of ours. But he's not a chum. We don't treat him like a mate. You know what? We don't put our arm around his shoulder and pat him on the back. That's, that's, not, that's not what he means. And that's not what it means to follow. We follow behind him in humble submission. To know His plans means we, we should drop to our knees in adoration of Him and humble submission. Thirdly, we imitate the steps of the, ones we, the one we follow. We want to be conformed to the image of Christ. We want to live our lives in a way that looks like His. Do you know the ways of Jesus? Have you studied His Word? Have you taken it into your heart? You know, I know many, many Christians who've never read the Bible. They've never read it. Some have never read the Gospels. You need to study, apply yourself to His Word. You need to know so you can walk in His steps. Fourthly, we go in the same direction. Many of you here are struggling with the double life. You know what I mean by that. You you come to church, you act okay here. But then when you're gone, when you leave, it's a different life. You live a different life. Um, There's all kinds of ways to do that. Part of it might be that you're not truly a believer. And we we talked about that early. Check your heart. But let me say, there's only one way for a follower of Christ to get out of the double life. You've got to put it in place. The light. You must confess it. It doesn't matter how embarrassing it is. Addictive behavior, gossip, a critical spirit, sexual promiscuity, infidelity, unbridled anger, constant fighting in marriages. These things must be put into the light. Talk to mature Christians about that double life in your life. It's the only way to get out of it. It's the only way to kill it. Live a life of consistency. Go in the same direction as the one we follow. And finally, fifthly, keep on following. Keep going. If you fall down, get up, persist. Keep going. In some ways, 
It looks like my friends who were in jail. They were faithful in jail. They proclaimed Christ. And they're out now. They're serving Jesus with their lives, full out, hounded out of their country in another place. But despite all the hardships and questions in their lives, and despite the healing that needed to take place, they are following faithfully, consistently. What about you? When these things come, hardships, hardness of belief, need to repent, a consistent life of discipleship in the call, are you willing? Do you believe? Let me pray for us to that end. Lord God, we recognize that um, these things can appear simple and yet we know our deep, deep truths of the Christian life. To repent and to believe and to live in the kingdom of God, Lord, is at its core our message and hope and everything we are. And we're grateful, Father, that you saw fit to come to us, to be near and present with your kingdom, and offer us the way into it. Pray for those who are still considering, are still on the line. And I pray, Father, that that you would move in their hearts, cause them to step out of the darkness into your marvelous light. I pray for those of us who believe, Lord God, that you would continue to call us to Yourself to follow You. We pray, Father, that our church would be full of exuberant fire for You that comes from a deep and heartfelt understanding of the Gospel message and the Kingdom of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.